One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey Dave, yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 49 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The next instalment will be available next week. This episode contains distressing themes explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. This is the final case of Season 6. for the members of a happy family are murdered in one day. There is one survivor of the motiveless attack, a nine-year-old girl, clinging to life, hanging on by the finest of threats. Will the correct perpetrator of these ruthless crimes be punished in the case known as the Chillenden Murders? difficult to pick a crime that arouses stronger feelings of revulsion and pity. That's how the judge described the attack that horrified the nation. Two members of the jury were reduced to tears when they had to look at photographs of the scene. Somehow the idyllic location, Cherry Garden Lane, surrounded by the cornfields of Kent, made it all seem far worse. No forensic evidence or identification has ever linked him to the crimes. I've always known and always believed in my heart that Mick was innocent. I still believe that today. My view, the last major miscarriage of justice in this country. We have now significant and substantial evidence that undermines the testimony. You take that away, you have an innocent man.
It was the summer of 1996. Dr Lynn Russell set off on foot to pick up her two children from school, accompanied by her dog Lucy. The day was July 9th, nearing the six-week school holidays. The Russell family lived in the Chocolate Box Parish of Nonington in the southeast corner of Kent, positioned between Dover and Canterbury. At around 4pm, Lynn was seen with her girls, six-year-old Megan and nine-year-old Josie, as they left the Gunston Church of England Primary School. Their dog Lucy was happily trotting along beside them, walking in the direction of home. That evening, Lynn's husband and the girl's father, Dr Sean Russell, arrived back at the property where the family lived. He was surprised. Lynn and the girls were not home like he expected them to be. Initially, Sean thought nothing of it, assuming they must have stopped somewhere on the walk. He continued with the daily chores and started to prepare dinner. Concern began to form in his mind when a family friend who was due to take Megan to Brownies rang to say Lynn and the girls were not at home when she showed up earlier. Sean made inquiries at local police stations, asking if there had been any accidents in the area. He was informed that no incidents had been reported. Sean then called around local hospitals, but none of them had any record of Lynn Russell or the girls. Sean put on his jacket and set off on the route that his wife and daughters would typically have taken. Unsuccessful in his search, Sean returned home and called the police to report Lynn and the children missing. By 7.30 that evening, a search party was set up consisting of around 30 officers from the Kent Police Tactical Unit. They attempted to retrace the steps Lynn, Megan and Josie might have taken that afternoon. Typically, Lynn and the girls walked the scenic route home, strolling through a small wooded area and cornfields. After hours of searching, at around 12.15am, police officers came across Megan's royal blue and turquoise swimming costume on Cherry Garden Lane which was less than half a mile from the Russells' home. With the assistance of flashlights, they focused their search on this specific area. Around 15 minutes later, officers spotted a bundle in the copse along the lonely country lane. They approached the mysterious heap and directed their flashlights at the objects. The officers recoiled in horror as the light illuminated the apparent lifeless bodies of Lynn, Megan and Josie Russell and their beloved dog Lucy. Nothing could have prepared Sean Russell for this devastating news. Lynn and Sean Russell met in 1973 and two years later, the devoted couple were married in Exeter. 
The Russells had lived in South Africa for 15 years, and this is where their two daughters, Josie and Megan, were born. In 1991, the family moved to the UK. They temporarily settled in the quiet village of Thanthlefny in North Wales, before relocating to Nonnington in August of 1995. The family had chosen one of the most scenic places in Britain, after Sean was offered a job at the Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology at Kent University. The parish of Nonnington is located in the heart of Kent, known as the Garden of England. The Russells found a quaint 19th century listed property granary cottage, once part of an estate that had run as a teacher training college. The building had been empty for 11 years before the Russells moved in and began to transform the cottage into a family home. When the Russells moved to the village, Lynn decided to send her daughters to a school in Gunston instead of Nonnington. She believed that a smaller school would make it easier for the girls to adapt and adjust to a new environment. Gunston Primary only had three teachers and four classroom assistants. The girls spoke Welsh, and while Josie struggled with her English spelling, the youngsters both settled in nicely at their new school. The teachers would later comment that it seemed like the pupils had always been there. The Kent countryside was the perfect location for the family, who enjoyed an outdoor lifestyle. Lynn was a keen gardener, and she quickly got to work planting vibrant flowers at the front of the property and vegetables in the rear garden. There were fields as far as the eye could see, and woodland for the family to enjoy as they walked their two dogs, Lucy a terrier, and Jackie a retriever-type breed. Lynn had a doctorate in geology, but she chose to stay at home, looking after the girls while Sean worked as a botanist for the Durrell Institute. One neighbour, Patrick Williams, would speak about Lynn and the family, stating to a reporter for the Times newspaper, Mrs Russell was a very striking and attractive woman. She was always in the garden, and I used to nickname her the Mother Earth. She reminded me of the actress Janet Suzman. The children were adorable and looked like she must have done when she was younger. The Russell family were well-travelled and their favourite summer destination was France. The girls had been attending French lessons and they commented to their parents that the pronunciation was easy because they knew Welsh. To complete the family, Megan and Josie each got a pony, with Sean telling a journalist for The Independent. The girls were very much country children. They grew up in South Africa and were both tomboys. They never needed television or many toys. They used to build dens and ride their ponies and make things. July 9th, 1996, 
and started out like any other day for the Russell family. They ate breakfast together, and then Lynn and Sean hurried around the house getting the girls ready for school. Megan and Josie climbed into the family car with Sean, then kissed him goodbye, and off they drove. Sean dropped off the girls and then travelled to work. He had some errands to run after his shift, which included visiting the library, a bank and a bicycle shop. After school, Megan and Josie attended a swimming gala in Canterbury. They were dropped back to the primary school by their coach. Like she had done many times before, Lynn left home in the mid-afternoon to go and pick up her daughters. The area where the Russell family lived was incredibly picturesque, and Lynn liked to take advantage of the views when the weather permitted. From the school, Lynn and the girls would stroll across cornfields and through a small wooded area to reach their home in Nonington. In a letter to a friend, Lynn once described the area she and the girls walked as tamed and wild. The journey would typically take 40 minutes, but Lynn and her daughters only got as far as Cherry Garden Lane before they were intercepted. An initial examination of the crime scene painted a horrific picture that starkly contrasted with the beautiful surroundings. Lynn Russell had sustained at least 15 severe blows from a blunt object. It was a frenzied attack, and she suffered at least nine fractures to the head, causing considerable disruption to the architecture of the brain. Lynn had been restrained with a piece of fabric tied to each wrist. Megan had also been hit with a blunt object at least seven times. She had sustained multiple fractures to her skull, which had been split in two, exposing brain tissue. Much like her mother, Megan had been restrained. There was evidence that a shoelace had been tied around her neck. Her blue and white dress was stained heavily with her sister's blood. Josie was found close by Megan. She had been tied to a tree with a pair of tights, blindfolded with a piece of fabric, and then bludgeoned across the head with a blunt object. There was brain tissue protruding from a wound behind her left ear and several lacerations to her skull. Near the bodies police found a bloody shoelace. There was neither evidence the victims had been subjected to a sexual assault, nor any indication of any kind of sexual activity by the killer. At first, it looked as though all three victims had succumbed to their extensive injuries. However, it was then noticed that nine-year-old Josie had a faint pulse. Dr. Michael Parks, the police doctor who had been called to the scene, later remarked, There were three bodies lying in a small clearing, apparently dead. But as I approached the adult, an officer noted that the body of a female child had moved. 
I had already ascertained that the adult was cold and showed no signs of life, and immediately transferred my attention to the child. She moved when I touched her and felt warm. Dr. Parks cradled Josie in his arms, carrying her to his car. PC Richard Levers climbed in the back seat with Josie and comforted her, while Dr. Parks drove as fast as he could to Kent and Canterbury Hospital. Josie was then transferred to the intensive care unit at London's King's College Hospital. Due to confusion at the chaotic crime scene, Sean Russell was initially told that his wife and both of his daughters had been killed. As his world collapsed in that instant, there was a glimmer of hope when he was told one of his children was desperately clinging to life. Sean was informed at first that it was Megan who had survived, but after he rushed to the hospital, he found Josie unconscious bruised and bloody. Josie underwent surgery to repair the splintered bones and damaged brain tissue. She had sustained fractures to both sides of her skull, and the worst injury was just above her left ear. Her skull had been penetrated, and the injury was the size of a tennis ball. Despite the brutal nature of the attack, incredibly, Josie Russell did not sustain any severe brain damage. However, since part of her brain needed to be surgically removed, she suffered from an impairment which affected her speech. During the procedure, Josie's open wounds were cleaned. The surgeons removed surface membranes from her exposed brain and then covered it with skin grafted from her thigh. She remained at the hospital, with her father always by her side. Sean was informed by a neurosurgeon that while Josie was no longer in a life-threatening condition, her speech and mobility could be permanently impaired. Armed police officers stood guard, and Josie's location was not made public. There was a great deal of concern that the killer could try to track her down and permanently silence Josie to prevent the child from identifying them. The investigation into the murders and attempted murder was headed by Detective Chief Inspector David Stevens. He warned women and children living in the area to not go anywhere alone. DCI Stevens remarked that the murders were the worst crimes he had ever investigated in his 23 years in the force. Can you tell us anything about the mother's state of mind, whether there were worries about her depression, anything like that? No, I can't at this stage. What about the religious sect which is based near here? What sort of inquiries are you making there? Well, this is uh, an area with um, a population which is very low, and clearly we're going to be speaking to everybody in in the locality, including... Nonington College, which is one I think you're referring to, which I understand is occupied now by uh, some sort of re- religious organisation. It used to be a teacher training college, I believe. 
And there's also a drugs rehabilitation unit. There are some establishments like that around, and they will form part of our inquiries just as much as any other houses or, or, or uh, shops, public houses uh, in the area. The crime seemed completely motiveless. The victims had not been robbed. None had been sexually assaulted, ruling out both robbery and a sexual motive. DCI Stevens stated, The person could be local and could have pre-planned this. We appeal to anyone who has seen someone, looking around, sitting in a car or just acting suspiciously, to contact us immediately. And the fact is that this is a, an area which is sparsely populated. We'd like to know anybody, uh, hear from anybody who was out uh, at the time. And really we're talking from four o'clock to sort of one o'clock in the morning. Were you walking in this area? Were you in Nonnington village? Were you at, uh, in the vicinity of the school? Did you th see anything suspicious? We'd like anybody to come forward. I think more precise appeals will come out later on in the day when we piece together this uh, a little bit more. But certainly we'd be anxious to hear from anybody uh, who was in this area at the time. Fear was palpable. There were concerns the killer could strike again. Children at Gunston Church of England Primary School were warned by their teachers not to play alone or go near strangers. When approached by reporters, Daryl Peake, the headmistress, said, We are trying to maintain a normal school day. The community has joined together to help us through this difficult time. Can you tell me anything at all about, uh, about your neighbours? I knew the two girls a little bit. They used to play with my little girl, Danielle, out the front here. But you know, I, I didn't know them awfully well, but... It's only just really sinking in that it's them. You know, I, I didn't, I've read, watched the news today and all the rest of it, and they said it was someone from Dover. It was only just like the last 10 minutes I've realised it actually was these two girls. So the children play outside. You know, we moved here from London thinking it would be a safe place to live. So, you know, it's... I don't really know what to say. It's, it's a shock. There were some early suspicions that the attack could have been perpetrated by somebody on drugs, with the focus on the nearby Promise Recovery Centre, a rehabilitation clinic costing £1,280 per week. However, the director, Robin Lefevre, said that those at the centre were in a state of abstinence. Members from the Bruderhof community a Christian sect at Beach Grove located beside the Russells' home also became the topic of local gossip. The Christian sect had been expelled from Nazi Germany in 1937 and had settled in Nonnington. Worldwide, there are around 2,000 members of the Bruderhof community and they distinctively wear Czech shirts and black braces. Some locals saw members of the sect as outsiders, but Klaus Meyer, the community's spokesperson, said that while their separateness from the rest of the community could fuel misunderstanding, they were pacifists. They had enjoyed a friendly relationship with the Russell family. In fact, the cottage where the Russells had lived was once owned by the Bruderhof community 
and Lynn had taught some of the children in the community how to ride ponies. Klaus Meyer said, Suspicion settles on us because they think we set ourselves apart from the village. In fact, we are not setting ourselves apart from them at all, only from the violence, corruption and pornography of our society. Kent Constabulary announced that they would be interviewing every single person in the village, as experts were called in to draw up a psychological profile of the killer. Sean Russell was ruled out as a suspect almost immediately, when video surveillance from three different video cameras corroborated his alibi. He had been shopping ten miles away when the attack took place. Just a day after the attack, a local man contacted police to report that he had seen a suspicious individual at around 5pm on the day of the murders. Anthony Rayfield had been walking his dog through cornfields around a mile away from where Lynn, Megan, Josie and their dog Lucy were found when he saw a man acting in what Rayfield labelled an agitated manner. Rayfield described the person he saw as around 35 to 40 years old, approximately 5 feet 6 inches tall with light-coloured hair. He was driving a beige family saloon car similar to an escort. Rayfield recalled how he observed the man as he pulled into a lay-by and threw a white bag into a nearby hedge. Since puppies had been previously dumped in the area, Rayfield decided he would go and investigate when the suspicious man sped off. Rayfield peered into the hedge and saw a white string bag that contained clothing and bloody strips of a towel. The following morning, Anthony Rayfield watched a new segment on the murder. He immediately called the police to report what he had seen the police recovered the white string bag. Inside, they found swimming costumes that belonged to the Russells and the strips from a towel stained with blood. The witness would help a sketch artist create an image of the man he had seen. The description was bolstered by another eyewitness who also presented herself to the police. Isabel Cole was driving home from visiting a friend in the village on July 9th when she saw a man swinging a claw hammer on a country lane. It was around the same time that Lynn and the girls were attacked. Cole took a mental note of the man's description, wearing a baseball cap and dark clothing as he swung the tool on a roadside bank. Isabel Cole said, I looked at his face and looked back down and looked around, and I could see nothing for the man to be using a hammer for. Cole described how the man had a very pale complexion and dark brown eyes. As she drove past, Cole glanced into her rearview mirror and watched as the individual disappeared down the country lane.
while tips came in from all across the country. None of them could identify the attacker. In an attempt to hopefully refresh someone's memory, a reconstruction was staged by police. While Josie Russell had miraculously survived the attack, there were concerns that she would never be able to recall what had happened. DCI Stevens spoke with the media and said, Realistically, it may be unlikely that she is able to remember much, particularly suffering from such massive injuries. Sean Russell was by Jose's bedside, and with each passing day his daughter's situation slowly improved. The week after Josie was brutally attacked, she regained consciousness. Speaking about her condition, her father talked to a reporter for The Independent. She is improving almost hourly. Every time I go to see her, she is a little better. The doctors tell me she is physically fairly okay. She is off the ventilator. She has got various signs of impairment to her mobility, but I can't tell how bad that will be yet. She is awake, and she can focus on me. She knows who I am, but she can't talk at the moment. She doesn't know yet that her mother and sister are dead. I can't bring myself to tell her. Helping Josie in her recovery was the only thing that kept Sean Russell going. He was swinging between periods of complete helplessness and hope for the future, praying Josie, his eldest and now his only child, would recover. By the following month, Josie was up and walking. She was allowed to leave the hospital with her father and slowly journeyed to a nearby park where they fed squirrels and geese. She developed a trademark style of wearing floppy hats to hide her injuries from prying eyes. She would take to lifting her father's car keys and standing by the door to indicate that she wanted to go home. Josie Russell was truly defying the odds, but she had not regained her ability to speak. She was attending speech therapy three times a week. At the time, she could mutter only the simplest of words. Her father, Sean, said, It's a small price to pay for the fact that she survived. While Josie was recovering physically, the challenge was to restore her memory and her speech. It was a dilemma for Josie and those caring for her. On the one hand, her recollections could help tremendously in the search for the killer. Still, it would undoubtedly be traumatic if she remembered what had happened. After six weeks, Josie was allowed to leave the hospital and return home with her father. As she continued to recover, gradually her memories of that awful day returned. 
around two months after an attack that left her mother, sister and dog dead. Josie began to recount what happened. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code among us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Two police officers sat down with Josie and her father at their home. They used a technique developed by speech therapists and child psychologists that involved short questions and sign language. In a series of videotaped interviews with the officers, Josie recollected how along with her mother, sister and dog Lucy, they had been walking along Cherry Garden Lane when a car passed them. She told police that she waved to the driver as they drove by. 
the family carried on their regular route. But moments later, Josie noticed that this same car was now parked across the track in front of them. As the mother and daughters approached the car, a man exited from the driver's side, opened up a rear door and grabbed a hammer on the parcel shelf. Josie said that this person then demanded money from her mother, Lynn. Lynn, who was just doing the school run, informed the man that she had no money. She said she would be willing to return home and get some for him. The man rejected Lynn's offer, and she begged him, Please don't hurt me or the children. The killer then began his murderous attack. Lynn shouted at Josie to run and she took off on foot, running as fast as her legs could carry her. She ran in the direction of a nearby house, Mount Ephraim, almost reaching the driveway when the man caught up with her, hit her on the head with a hammer, and then grabbed her. He dragged Josie back towards her mother and sister, and forced them into a small, dense copse concealed from the adjoining fields, out of view. Here he bound Lynn, Megan and Josie with strips he had torn from Josie's swimming towel. Lynn was blindfolded and her wrists and ankles were bound with her shoelaces. Josie was ordered to take off her shoes and tights and while on her knees, Josie's tights were used to tie her to a nearby tree. As she protested, the man only bound her tighter. Josie explained to the police officers that she had begged the man to leave her alone and let her family go. The man said he would leave them bound and drive away, but he was not being truthful. When all three were immobilised, the killer approached Lynn and began hitting her on the head with the hammer. Josie recollected how her mother shouted as she was attacked. Josie heard Lynn struggle for breath. Josie's mother was struck a total of 15 times, including one potential defensive wound that resulted in a broken finger. Moments later, Josie could hear the man approach her. She tried to stand up and uttered the word don't before the hammer came down on her head again and again and again. She then blacked out. Josie had been hit over a dozen times. Afterwards, the man bludgeoned Megan and the family's dog Lucy to death. He left the family where they would be found almost nine hours later. Josie told officers that the person who had attacked them was between 20 and 30 years old. He was scruffily dressed and he had short brown hair. Josie recalled that he did not have wrinkles. When she was shown an e-fit of the suspicious man who was seen throwing the white string bag into a hedge, she confirmed it looked like the man who had attacked her and her family. The strips of towel that Josie described were the strips of material found in the discarded white string bag. 
as Josie was being interviewed, the Sun newspaper launched a nationwide solver murder campaign. The first case that they presented was the murder of Lynn and Megan Russell, which had become known as the Chillenden Murders. The newspaper announced that there was a £20,000 reward for information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of the killer. Police disclosed that they believed they had already interviewed the person responsible. They were expecting to make an arrest soon. Detective Chief Inspector David Stevens said that the constabulary had already questioned over 5,000 people. It was a case of methodically narrowing down that number. DCI Stevens remarked that some people within the area were very evasive, raising the officer's suspicions. However, investigators still had not been able to identify the killer's rationale. The chief inspector remarked, We have to ask what was the motive. Was it the children or the mother? Or was it someone fulfilling a fantasy? There doesn't seem to be anyone in Lynn's background that would want her dead. The following month, Lynn and Megan Russell were laid to rest in a 14th century churchyard located in the Welsh village of Nantley. Sean and Josie packed up their belongings and moved away from Nonnington, back to North Wales. The memories in the village were far too traumatic for them to continue living there. Moreover, Josie had been suffering from panic attacks and still had a long road ahead of her as the physical and mental rehabilitation continued. When Sean thought of his wife and youngest daughter, the first image that came flooding back to him was of them lying in the mortuary side by side. Sean and Josie moved into a white semi-detached cottage in the foothills of Snowdonia. It was less than 100 yards away from where the family had lived years earlier. Josie returned to school and was surrounded by all of her old friends. Sean hoped that with this support it would help Josie to heal and prevent some of the very worst nightmares about what happened on that fateful day returning. While police had an e-fit of the suspect, the case gradually went cold. Detectives had followed every single lead that came in, but each one only led to a dead end. Identifying a suspect and their motives seemed just out of reach. The investigation had taken the constabulary to the United States, Australia and South America, but the fair-haired assailant with the beige car had so far eluded detection. In May 1997, a National Crime Unit was established to investigate whether serial killers and serial rapists were operating in Britain. It was called the Serious Crime Bureau and had an annual budget of £1.7 million. 
among the cases they were going to investigate was the Russell murders. Months later in July, there was a huge breakthrough when a DNA profile was identified, suspected to have come from the killer. The sample was recovered from a strand of hair found at the crime scene. This piece of evidence ruled out 12 people considered potential suspects. Shortly after the announcement came the one-year anniversary of the attack. The date came with massive publicity, including a segment on BBC's Crime Watch, which included a reconstruction. At the end of the show, Sean Russell broke down as he appealed to viewers to help police find the killer of his wife, one of his daughters and the family's dog. After Crime Watch aired, the tip line was inundated. More than 1,000 phone calls came in from people naming potential suspects. There was one name that popped up more than a handful of times. Michael Stone. Police carried out intensive research on 37-year-old Stone, who was from Gillingham, Kent, ran 30 miles away from the scene of the attack. A special surveillance squad shadowed him while other officers conducted a background check, including an inquiry at the DVLA in Swansea to see what kind of cars Stone had owned or used the past year. On July 17, 1997, a team of 20 police officers swooped in and raided Stone's rundown flat in Gillingham. He was arrested and taken to Chatham Police Station. Officers had 36 hours to question him. When that period was up, they applied to a magistrate for another 24 hours and their request was granted. While being questioned, Michael Stone denied any involvement in the murders and attempted murder. But when he was asked to provide an alibi for the day of the attack, he could not. When offering his reasons, Stone replied, One, because I was badly on drugs, and another because it was so long ago. Detectives discovered that Stone had been at cash converters on Chatham High Street in Kent at 12.21pm on the day of the murders. They had found a receipt with his signature on it. Chatham is approximately 40 miles from the parish where the Russells lived. Strangely, Stone also said he was not sure what type of car he had been driving at the time. The following day, Michael Stone was charged with theft and burglary, but these charges were not in connection to the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell. Instead, they related to a burglary on July 11, 1996, two days after the attack, and a robbery on July 23rd. This can often be a tactic of police when somebody is suspected of a violent crime. If at the time there is not enough evidence to charge them with that specific offence, the authorities will charge the perpetrator with a lesser crime to keep them in custody 
while the investigation into the more serious incident is undertaken. Michael Stone was held behind bars as the investigation into his potential involvement in the murders continued. His inquiry included taking statements from people who knew Stone. Police discovered that sometime after the attack, he had visited two friends, Lawrence Calder and Cherie Batt. Stone's friends noticed that he was wearing clothing stained with blood. Bat queried the stains, and Stone explained that he had been in a fight, but it was noted there were no injuries to his face. According to Lawrence Calder, Stone appeared to be distant. He was not himself. Calder also noticed the blood-stained clothing and something even more suspicious in the back seat of Stone's car. There was blood on a hooded sweatshirt, and also blood spatter on some tools in Stone's toolbox. Calder stated, I was talking to him, and then I saw down his groin there were specks of blood, and one large area of blood. Calder never asked Stone where the blood had come from. Initially, when Lawrence Calder spoke with the police, he had claimed that he and Stone had been fighting and they were together on the day of the attack. However, Calder later recanted this statement telling officers, At the end of the day, I wasn't with him. I don't know if he did it, but if he did it, I wasn't with him. Michael Stone was presented with this testimony from his friends, and he responded, I ain't done the Chillingdon murders. I never had blood on me, and I never went to his place with blood on me. The investigation would also uncover that in the months after the attack, Stone burned all of his clothing and purchased an entirely new wardrobe. The suspect conceded this fact, but said that he had done so simply because he had put on weight, telling police, I didn't have no respect for myself. I just wore dirty old things. With a potential killer behind bars on unrelated charges, police hoped that Josie could determine that Stone was the assailant. She was taken to the police station's identity suite in Raynham, Kent, where she watched behind a one-way glass screen. Twelve men, including Stone, were brought in and ordered to stand in a line. Josie held on tightly to her father's hand as she paced up and down, getting a close look at each of the men. By now, Josie had almost made a full recovery. She was talking in fully coherent sentences, but she was still struggling with some words and naturally struggled with the memories of what had happened to her and her family. There were other eyewitnesses who partook in the lineup as well, including the dog walker who had seen somebody dispose of the girl's white string bag that contained a ripped-up bloody towel.
on October 20, 1997, Michael Stone was charged with the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie. Stone appeared before Medway magistrates to be formally charged. He only spoke to confirm his identity and affirm he understood the charges against him. Stone was then remanded into custody. Outside of court, his solicitor Derek Hayward said, Michael Stone would like to make it clear that he is innocent of all these offences. This is a matter which has been continually denied by him throughout all of his police interviews. Michael Stone had lived only 30 miles away from where the attack had taken place. He had intimate knowledge of the area, and according to one friend John Porter, he knew the exact spot where the murder had taken place, quote, like the back of his hand. While Michael Stone was on remand in Canterbury Prison, he found himself to be the victim of a campaign of abuse due to the violent nature of the alleged crimes and due to the fact he had allegedly killed a child. Those who harm women and children are considered among the lowest in prison hierarchy. Other inmates called Stone a child killer, a nonce, and urged him to kill himself. Damien Daly was locked up in the cell next to Stone's. One afternoon when Stone was being verbally abused, Daly shouted at the other inmates to keep quiet. It seemingly set off a chain reaction within Stone, who allegedly began to divulge details of the murders, confessing that he was the person who committed them. Stone went into graphic detail as he spoke to Daly through a connecting pipe between the jail cells. According to his fellow inmate, Stone described how he had tied up the Russells with the wet towels the girls had been carrying home from a swimming gala. He was accused of saying that the scent from the wet swimming costumes in the bag had given him sexual pleasure. Stone supposedly joked about how he had tied them up, but didn't really need to. In his words, they were out of the game. Stone commented that the dog Lucy was making more noises than Lynn, Megan or Josie, and he referred to the victims as paupers, slags and horse. Michael Stone was said to have told Damien Daly that striking the victims' heads was like, quote, bashing an egg in. Stone went on to describe the disturbing scenario to Daly, recounting how he wanted one of the girls to watch him kill her mother and sister. Stone allegedly recalled that she closed her eyes, so he hit her again with the hammer, causing her to squirm. According to Stone, one of the girls was disobedient and tried to get away. Michael Stone was later transferred from Canterbury Prison to HMP Elmley in Sheerness. Here he supposedly developed a bitter rivalry with another inmate, Barry Thompson. 
Thompson told the police that on one occasion Stone threatened him by saying, I made a mistake with her. I won't make the same mistake with you. Presumably Stone was referring to Josie Russell and the fact she had survived his attack. Two months later, Stone was moved back to Canterbury Prison and he allegedly made one final comment. He had been the target of abuse and taunts from other inmates and during one verbal altercation he shouted, but for that slack, I would have been okay. When Michael Stone was presented with the eyewitness testimony of his comments, he claimed the inmates were telling a pack of lies. He categorically denied that he had attacked the Russell family. Stone accused the two inmates of trying to fit him up. As the case was working its way through the justice system and more people were coming forward with evidence against Michael Stone, Josie Russell was awarded £18,500 in compensation for the attack. The Criminal Injuries Compensation Board could have awarded her up to half a million pounds, but she was provided with the absolute minimum. The majority of the money was said to make up for the loss of parental services until Josie turned 18 years old. Lawyers acting on behalf of Josie referred to the award as derisory and said that they were going to launch an appeal against an amount they believed was inadequate. Her father agreed, saying, It stings me that they could offer so little for Lynn. She was a wonderful mother. It's very depressing to offer what amounts to six pounds a day. Seems shocking. The appeal was successful, and in July, Josie's compensation was quadrupled to £79,000 before it was later increased to £179,000. October 5th, 1998. The jury consisting of eight women and four men were seated at Maidstone Crown Court, and the murder trial began. Anne Rafferty QC prosecuting described the routine morning for the Russell family. By that late afternoon, however, their lives were transformed forever. The prosecutor detailed how Lynn, Megan, Josie and their dog Lucy were attacked as they walked home to their cottage. Anne Rafferty QC revealed there was no forensic evidence directly linking defendant Michael Stone to the murders. The case against him rested on the confessions he made to the other inmates, supported by circumstantial evidence. An unknown hair had been found on Lynn Russell's bloody trousers, and it was previously speculated that this had come from the killer. However, DNA testing had failed to link it to Stone or any other person of interest for that matter. A bloody fingerprint was also found on one of the girl's lunchboxes, but it too could not be linked to Stone or anybody else. 
It was additionally disclosed during the trial that Josie could not pick Michael Stone out of the police lineup. During the trial, the jury was shown graphic photographs of Lynn and Megan's lifeless bodies in the cops. Jurors had been warned by the prosecutor that the images were disturbing. The court heard testimony from inmate Damien Daly, to whom Stone had supposedly confessed. Daly said that he did not tell prison staff initially about Stone's confession, because Stone had threatened to kill his children if he did. Stone had allegedly told Daly, They won't believe you anyway. I will say I was mad. In referencing the confession Stone made to Daly and Rafferty QC said, he had smelt the swimming costumes and achieved his best orgasm ever. Under cross-examination, Damien Daly denied that he was lying in an attempt to fit up Stone. Daly did admit, however, that he had a newspaper in his jail cell, which contained an article about the Russell murders but he contended he did not get information about the murders from the newspaper. The jury also heard from fellow inmate Barry Thompson, who had said that he had been threatened in prison by Stone. Under cross-examination by Stone's counsel, William Clegg QC, Thompson did not back down from his contention that Stone had referenced the hammer attack in his threats. Mark Jennings also testified as a prosecution witness. He too was incarcerated with Stone. Jennings mentioned that he had killed a barman, and Stone told him that if he had killed the witnesses, he would have got away with it. However, after Jennings' testimony, he was forced to admit that his family had been paid £5,000 for his story by the Sun newspaper adding they were going to be paid more if Stone was convicted. Michael Stone's friends Lawrence Calder and Cherie Bat spoke of the blood-stained clothing Stone was seen wearing after the murders. Josie Russell was not asked to testify during the trial. Instead, a four-hour compilation of her interviews was displayed for the court. The videotaped evidence had been agreed upon by both the prosecution and defence, who concurred that it would be far too traumatic for the young girl to testify and relive the moment again in court. The jury watched as Josie spoke about her recollections of the attack with specially trained police officers Ed Tingley and Pauline Smith. The police had commissioned the construction of a model of the crime scene, along with figurines that were created in the likeness of the Russell family. Josie reenacted the frenzied attack with the models. She communicated with the police officers through a basic form of sign language. As Prosecutor Anne Rafferty QC explained, the head injuries that Josie Russell sustained caused her to have significant expressive language difficulties, 
and also affected her understanding of language. When Josie was asked by Detective Constable Tingley what the man had done to her family, she suddenly said, oh. She then pointed toward a photograph of her mother. When police artist David Clare produced an image he had created of the suspect, Josie appeared pleased. She told him that it closely resembled their attacker. D.C. Tingley asked, Is that the man that murdered Mummy? Would you know him if you saw him? The man that hurt you? Josie said she would, and indicated it was him. The poignant footage was considered among the most extraordinary to be played in any British court. When the prosecution rested their case, Michael Stone's counsel, William Clegg QC, said that offence calls no evidence. During closing arguments, Anne Rafferty QC said that Stone had claimed to the police he did not know the location where the attack had occurred. Yet those who knew Stone contended that he did. Moreover, as a young boy, Stone had been housed in a children's home in the area. The prosecutor highlighted the fact that Stone said the inmates were lying and that they were stitching him up. But Stone's confession went into great detail, even mentioning the use of shoelaces and wet towels. William Clegg QC told the jury during closing that they must not lose sight of objectivity. According to the defence counsel, Stone fitted the pattern of a person who would have committed such a crime, telling the jury... They're not going to arrest the likes of you or me. Clegg revealed that Stone had requested to be put in segregation while awaiting trial because he said inmates in a previous jail had invented his confession. Addressing the jury, the barrister said, Having asked to be protected from false confessions, having been put in isolation in segregation to get that protection... You're being asked to think that the first thing he does when he gets into that cell is to make a confession to the man next door. Do you think that very likely? It was now up to the jury to decide whether Michael Stone was guilty of the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie. After deliberating for 14 hours and 33 minutes, the jury returned with their verdicts. Michael Stone was found guilty of all charges. The verdicts had come after the judge informed the jury he would accept a majority. Jurors returned with a 10-2 majority on each of the three counts. As Michael Stone stood to be sentenced, 
he still protested his innocence and said, I didn't do it. Your Honour, it wasn't me. Mr Justice Kennedy sentenced Stone to three life sentences. He stipulated that Stone must serve at least 14 years before he could apply for parole. The judge remarked that Stone should take no comfort from that figure, as it was purely academic. Sean Russell immediately called Josie to inform her of the verdict and the sentence. His daughter simply replied, Good. But within days of Josie's forthright reply to her father, the case against her alleged attempted killer began to unravel. This is the end of episode 49. To hear the concluding instalment of the Chillingdon murders, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.